Zephaniah, and uh, we've done for the, for, uh, the holiday period, so we was, the last few years I've been doing short uh, series, uh, we've, we've done Jonah, we've done Habakkuk, uh, Malachi, this year at Zephaniah, and uh, the focus of it is the day of the Lord. I want to tell you about a sermon uh, that was preached a long time ago. In fact, it was preached in 1741 by Jonathan Edwards, titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Not the sort of title you see posted on church billboards today. I'm told, if I recall correctly, it's not in the notes that I have here, I'm told that he spoke for an hour and that Jonathan was barely higher than the pulpit and he had thick glasses and he never looked up, he just read it or spoke it, but there was weeping throughout that sermon and it was the beginning of the great awakening to hit uh, what is today the United States because this is pre the, uh, uh, well it's in the early period of uh, after the American Revolution and it took hold. Now, it's not popular today to preach on wrath and judgment. We kind of want to soften the message a little, make it a little bit more palatable, a little bit more marketable. But we need to preach the Word of God without watering it down. That means as we look at this, and I'm going to remind you for, this is a part two for those that weren't here last week, so you're going to pick up the outline uh, but you won't get the full thing. If you want to hear it, you'll have to get it online. Uh, but we're going to look through just to review where we came from last week so you know where we are today because this is, a, this is a, a, a full passage of it. In the previous section, the prophet Zephaniah described the Lord's judgment on the people of Judah because of their wickedness and the exploitation of others. I've done what I'm doing lately, and that's forgetting to read the passage with you. Let's turn in your Bibles, if you've got them open, if you've got it on your phone or in a tablet, or it will be on screen. Zephaniah 1, 4, and uh, we're going to go through to chapter 2, verse 3. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem... And I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. And those who bow down on the housetop to the host of heaven and those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. And those who have turned back from following the Lord and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, he has consecrated his guests. 
Then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. And I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, there will be the sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become their plunder, and their houses desolate. Yes, they will build houses, but not inhabit them, and plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and their high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation, without shame. Before the decree takes effect, the day passes like the chaff. Before the anger of the Lord, burning anger of the Lord comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Zephaniah speaks of the day of the Lord, but the news is a warning rather than a comfort. Others have referred to this as the coming time of trouble or the great and terrible day of the Lord. God's own people in Judah and Jerusalem are the focus of the coming judgment. But God will also judge the nations. And as we looked at it last time, we highlighted that there are four ways we're looking at that. In verses 4 to 6, it's the cause, and we'll summarize those briefly. In verses 7 to 13, it outlines the course of the actions that he takes, the way he goes about it, uh, who he's targeting. The consequences in this second section is where we pick up today, and then the call. So today we get the good news. Actually, someone who's not here today actually said to us, she didn't give us the good news last week. <laughs> you only gave us the bad news. 
Well, today we do get to that other half of the good news. In the cause, we're dealing with why God stretches out his hand against Judah. And the, the, you remember, for those that were not here, that, that the nation of Israel had been taken into captivity in 722 BC. Judah lasted a little longer with some godly kings, but a number of ungodly ones before Josiah, the king who's now here. He starts as a boy king at eight years of age. At 16, he turns his heart to the Lord, possibly through the preaching of Zephaniah. And he institutes a reform throughout the land to deal with all the pagan worship and the idol worship that's going on, but it's not complete. And this warning goes out to the nation, to those that are listening. And he gives the, uh, Zephaniah gives the reason from God. Firstly, they'd been caught up in Baal worship, and Baal meant to be the master. It, it came out of the uh, Canaanite backgrounds. And uh, he says he's going to cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. The, other, the next part was to deal with astrology, those who worship the stars and the signs, and we still have elements of that today uh, with the uh, star signs and all of those things that the world sort of t tries to put some significance in, and he, he says it's not true worship of him. There were those who also syncretized, that is, they, they would proclaim the name of the Lord, but they also, it says Milcom, but it was also, uh, there's a, the other name, and it's just gone blank on me at the minute, but it'll come back in a moment, but um, Moloch, the God who you offered children to and burned them on the fire, they, had, they were swearing by the name of the Lord and yet swearing by Moloch or Milcom. And uh, then as well, there was apostasy, those who proclaimed to follow God but turned away to, to, to do other things. And then there, the, this one is a big challenge for us today, apathy. Those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. In other words, we, we're kind of merrily going along our way but we don't bother to seek God, the God who we profess to believe. Now, you and I can fall for that sometimes, but I hope it's not characteristic or there's a question, are we truly his, that we ought to be seeking the Lord and following his will and purpose. So then we saw the cause, the course, not the cause. <laughs> and we had this pronouncement, which was a, 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 a be silent in the court moment. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. And ironically, uh, he says that he's prepared a sacrifice and it was the invited guests who were the sacrifice. It's, a, it's a pic an ironic picture of almost cannibalism. They are going to be consumed in the judgment themselves. And he targets, firstly, the princes and aristocrats, the leaders of the nation. Now, Josiah, uh, Josiah was a godly king. But he does die in the, the coming day, the day, uh, the first part of the coming day, which was the pronouncement of judgment on Judah when it was taken into captivity. And that went on over a process from around 608 BC through to 586 when it was more or less completed. So the princes and the aristocrats 
uh, the king's sons and all those who clothed themselves with foreign garments. Foreign garments was a picture of taking on the worship and the culture of these pagan ideals. As with that came along oppression. As people made money their god and they, they went to corrupt lengths to, to have false scales and all of those things. And he says, I, I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple. That's a picture of superstition that may have came, come from a Philistine background. And, and when it says about who fill the house of their Lord with violence, it's not talking about the temple of God. It's talking about their idol worship temple. Uh, and, and that was the characteristic. And verse uh, 12 to 13, he's going to search out Jerusalem with lamps. And who he's looking for are those who he says who are stagnant in spirit. And their wealth will be plundered. That all of their gain in their false worship uh, won't protect them. Now today we come to the section of term consequences. It deals with the imminence and the horror of Judah's judgment. And we pointed out there is both a near fulfillment, as with most prophecy. It was addressed to Israel and they would face the consequences. But it's quite clear as you go through it, it's looking to an ultimate fulfillment on the day of the Lord's coming. On that day, it says, the voice of the Lord will be heard. In Psalm 29, verses 3 and 4, it says, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. Now, if you've ever been to Zimbabwe and Victoria Falls, uh, it's the falls that thunder. <laughs> it's the roar of the water. You wouldn't like to get caught and be taken over the edge at Victoria Falls. There's for virtually no chance you would survive. It's, it's the voice that thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. And Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah 66, verse 6. A voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple. The voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. And in verse 14, he tells us that it's imminent. Near is the great day of the Lord and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In other words, hark, can't you hear it coming? In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. Zephaniah begins by telling his readers that the great day of the Lord was near. It's fast approaching, so they were to fear it. They were to prepare for it. Isaiah 42 verse 13 says, The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. It's a day of crying. And even the mighty men will weep in despair. One study Bible says this, the Christians should be careful not to adopt a complacent or a cynical attitude regarding the day of the Lord, but instead should adopt an attitude of expectancy because the event is sure and ever present on the horizon. You know, we, we kind of like to put it out there somewhere in the never-never. 
but it's coming. And there will be no stopping it once God has determined that the day of the Gentiles is up. And he brings his people to their knees. And we know from Zechariah, we know from Revelation that uh, that will be at terrible cost to, the, to Israel and the Jewish people. That the cry that we hear today in Israel as they saw 1,300 of their people massacred in un, indescribable ways that the world seems to have turned a blind eye to that even the Holocaust will seem insignificant. But it is a day of judgment, a day of bringing. But he does bring a remnant, and he does bring a remnant not only of Israel, but also a remnant of the nations to a place of faith. We'll get to that towards the end. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 3-4, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Uh, yeah. And in 2 Peter 3, 11, he says, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct? And godliness. Now the picture is that not only it will be imminent, but it will be intense. Verses 15 to 17. Oh, yeah, I missed the verse, the rest of the verse, but verse 12 said, uh, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But it's going to be intense, the day of the Lord. It's a day of wrath. You know, oh, it's an angry God. Well, Jonathan Edwards said it's sinners in the hands of an angry God. All who reject him. We are all sinners. Some sinners, by, by the grace of God, receive his mercy. And the sinners who don't repent will face the fullness of the wrath. And look at the description. It's a day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. He describes it in a staccato catalogue of horror. From the point of view of God, it, it is filled with his wrath. As Hosea 5.10 puts it this way, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. While its impact on humanity is described in five pair of sy pairs of synonyms, so five pictures of two words each time to double the emphasis. And it's a picture of terror in verse 15. You get the pairing there. God's pent-up indignation against men's ungodliness and unrighteousness will be poured out. It would be a day marked by emotional trouble and distress. 
As well as physical destruction and desolation, the prophet described the terror as darkness and gloom and clouds and thick darkness. Marvin Sweeney notes this in his his commentary on Zephaniah. He explains that the word for destruction in Hebrew, shoah, and you might have heard that word before. If you've ever heard of the Holocaust, you'll see now the Jews are referring it to as the time of their shoah, the destruction. It's used in place of Holocaust to designate the murder of six million Jews and others by the Nazis and their sympathizers in World War II. The image of distress, disaster and darkness echoes similar language used to describe the day of Yahweh or the day of God, the Lord, by other Old Testament prophets. In Isaiah 13:9, behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Amos 5:18, alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, For what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. Ezekiel 30 verse 3, For the day day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. It will be day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. And Joel 2, 2, a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness as the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there ever be a, there be again after it to the years of many generations. I told you before, you need to, to truly understand the beauty of that which is good news, you need to put it against the darkness. You ever notice that uh, if you go to a, uh, a jeweler's, they will have that sparkling diamond on show against a black background. Why? Because it brings out the glory and the beauty. But here we are seeing what it, what it costs to ignore the living God. That day is coming and it's looming and it's coming fast and we need to take hold of it. It's also a day of warfare, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. You've got to step back into the imagery of that period where strength in a nation was measured by strong walls and fortified towers. You know, we've almost gone back to it. America's trying to build its wall to keep out... Israel had to build its wall to keep the Palestinians from attacking it for terrorist attacks. But the day is coming when God will bring it to a conclusion. And the description concludes with a pairing of two familiar battle sounds. In, in, in Old Testament history, the battle was sounded by, for the Israelites by the blowing of the shofar, the ram's horn. And it's a piercing sound. And the war cries, of course, of the warriors, the battle cries. One commentator notes this, Zephaniah frighteningly pictures the day of God's wrath as an invading army that will bring distress, anguish, trouble and ruin on all who sin against the Lord. Fortified cities speak of even the most secure of Judah's strongholds. They will prove vulnerable to her mighty God. 
Another says the alarm would be sounded, that's the trumpet, the shofar warned the people of the danger coming, and couriers would dispatch the terrible news, but to no avail. Another says this, it ends the security people thought to find in them. On that day, no one will find shelter anywhere. Those who seek protection in human fortifications are deceiving themselves. You see it in Revelation 6. When they see the coming of the Lord and, and, and the awesomeness of his wrath, and remember this follows that half-hour silence in heaven where the shock and awe <laughs> that Jesus is finally bringing accountability is finally bringing the judgment to the nations, to Israel and the nations. And the unbelievers cry out for the rocks and hills to fall on them because they can't stand the glory of the Lord. It's, it's, it's a day of incredible portent, of incredible darkness. But it's not the darkness without hope if you will listen before you get to that day. But it is of, also in verse 17 tells us it's a picture of distress and death. I will bring, about, uh, bring distress on men so that they will walk, walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Instead of walking in God's guidance, Judah will walk like the blind, staggering from her spiritual blindness. Blindness is a punishment for unfaithfulness. And we see it to some degree in the secularism uh, of Israel today. Uh, we very much support Israel, but we know that as yet it's not a theocratic state. And there are many that are seeking uh, the gods of this world rather than the God. Mind you, this experience of October 7 has drawn many to come to pray, and you'll see a photo in a moment of thousands gathered at the Western Wall, weeping and praying for the release of hostages from, from their land. We just pray that that will continue into an opening of eyes for those who might truly come to him, and the Christian groups are getting... Uh, much greater opening at the moment than they've had in recent times. They're even being sought by Jewish, by rabbis and others to pray with them. Um, and there's, there's greater care and dialogue going on than it was possible in previous times. But this warning is here. In Deuteronomy 28 and 28 to 29, it says, The Lord will smite you with madness and with blindness and with bewilderment of heart. Remember, this is speaking of unbelieving Jews at this time, but also for all. And you will not prosper in your way. You'll grope at noon as the blind man gropes in the darkness. And you will not prosper in your ways, but you shall only be oppressed and robbed continually with none to save you. It's a day of confusion and bloodshed. Because of their sins, men will walk bewildered, not knowing how to escape the judgment coming upon them. The judgment will finally take them, and their blood will be poured out as dust, and their flesh as dung. As though worthless, their blood and flesh will be called, poured out as, uh, as uh, dust and refuse. And the third thing he tells us in this cascade uh, of the wrath to coming upon God 
is that it's inevitable. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indebted, terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. God's fiery judgment will consume the whole land and bring to a sad end all who dwell in the land. You see, it will be an all-consuming day, as Roy Gingrich says, all the sinners of Judah and her pagan nations will be consumed just as the sinners of the whole earth will be consumed during the ultimate and universal day of the Lord, as you see in Revelation 6 to 19. David Baker says God's jealousy, his strong desire to protect his unique position as Israel's creator, redeemer and covenant ruler is stirred up at the pagan interests of his people. Have you noticed in our society that the Western world is reverting to paganism? It's, it's, it, the onslaught is incredible and the reversal of values, etc. Charles Feinberg says the judgments of God are terrible, but how ineffably sweet is his grace which he has manifested to guilty sinners. No, I've jumped ahead to the, sorry, I've jumped ahead to the next section. As a result of the fire of his wrath, he will consume not only Judah, but the whole world. Deuteronomy 4.24. We've skipped that. I'll just jump over. Deuteronomy 4.24 says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire a jealous God. You know, we've told the world for the last century and a half, smile, Jesus loves you. God is a God of love. But we've ignored the reality that God is also a jealous God, not in the, not in the negative sense in which we apply, as fallen humans apply jealousy, but as in the sense that he wants to preserve the best for those that are his. He wants to preserve the purity, the righteousness, the holiness, the glory, the joy. But it's being stained by the intrusion, like cancer, of paganism across our society. It's a warning for the church as well. But you see, here comes the good news. You see, Zephaniah is saying to Judah, you're you're going to face this judgment. Yes, the nations will face it. We'll look at that next time. But you're going to face this judgment. And they did in a near sense. And remember in Zechariah, we have the counter side of that 70 years later where they're coming back to the land. Now they've got to re-pick up the ways of the the scriptures, the ways of God, uh, and come to true worship. But they're, they're, they're at this point having to make a choice. And while sin is a universal problem, God still shows grace if his people repent. And here God mercifully invites his people to repent. What is repentance? You know, have you ever gone off, gone to turn off the highway and got confused about those turn off? I hope you haven't. (laughs) And I certainly hope you you haven't actually done it and ended up going the wrong way on the freeway. (laughs) rather disastrous consequences you can imagine. Um, 
What do the signs say? Now, those of you who have never done it, of course, don't know what they say. <laughs> but there's a big sign you might have seen in your rear view mirrors. It says, wrong way, go back. <laughs> and God is calling the people of Judah to recognize that they've been going the wrong way. And they're in great and grave danger. And we're called to the same, to turn back from the ways of this world. And so he says to the nation, gather, gather yourself together. Yes, gather, O nation, without shame. And shameless nation might be the way we better put it for what they've been displaying before their God without fear. Before the decree takes effect and the day passes like chaff, before the burning of the, of the Lord, anger of the Lord comes upon you. As I say, here you see, and uh, there's a picture here as well, of thousands gathering at the Wailing Wall to pray for the release of the hostages, turning back to God to some extent. But we just pray for opening of eyes that they might come to see Yeshua as the Messiah and understand the future promises and the promises of the scripture that have been darkened to their eyes. They're called to gather. Now the word term for gather is related to the word for straw or stubble. Judah has become an undesirable nation, a shameless nation. One writer says this, they are no longer the apple of his eye, just worthless stubble to be dispensed with. Now we have to be careful here of having an attitude of superiority as a church. The church is just as frail and just as vulnerable to falling for the same deceptions and darkness as Israel was. As Thomas Constable said, Zephaniah called for the shameless people of Judah to gather together evidently in a nationwide public assembly in order to repent. They needed to do so before the Lord's decree to punish them took effect and his burning anger overtook them. Nineveh had repented at the preaching of Jonah and the Lord had relented from judging it. Perhaps he would do the same if the Judeans repented. The day of judgment was coming as swiftly as chaff blows before the wind, so they needed to act immediately. In Joel 2, 11 to 13, it says this, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. You see, when Jonathan Edwards preached that message on sinners in the hands of an angry God, as the congregation took hold of it, great weeping came across upon them as they thought about the darkness of their sin and the consequences and the judgment and the wrath of God that would be justified in sending them. And he was clear on this to an everlasting hell burning fires that never consume and never bring comfort. And Joel says, and rend your heart and not your garments. In other words, your religious actions don't mean anything if the heart's not there. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. And so they're told to seek, firstly to seek the Lord, 
all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps, and I'll get to that in a minute, perhaps you'll be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. In a sense of urgency, rather than abandoning God as it had been doing, Judah is called to seek diligently for him, which is the mark of true piety. If we value something, we, we look for it, we, we look out for it, we, we go to lengths to either acquire it or protect it or attain it. And he says to seek the Lord. And the only means by which one can hope to escape the judgment of God as well as to please the Lord daily is to seek him. Isaiah 55 verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And of course, that's near in the sense of being approachable, not in the sense of imminent judgment. Psalm 105 verse 4 says, Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. This is not apathetic, passive Christianity. This is a a, a genuine following after the Lord Jesus. We can play the game, but he's saying get real, get serious, and be sure you're on the right track. In Amos 5, 6, seek the Lord that you may live, or he will break forth like a fire, O house of Joseph, and it will consume with none to quench it for Bethel. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 8, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. He addresses, you notice, the humble of the land. And that indicates that despite this picture of doom and gloom for the sinners, that there are some who have genuinely turned to follow the way of God. And not everyone is apostate. A few rely on God rather than themselves being humble and lowly. Because the humble realize that they need to turn beyond themselves for help. You heard it shared, Darren share it. He came to that place of recognition that he was a sinner and he needed the Lord. That drifting from the things of God was, was, was not doing him any favor. That he needed to follow Jesus. He needed Jesus as a savior and Lord to lead him. Another translation for humble of the land is the meek of the earth. Psalm 37, 11 says, But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. It bothers me when I see Christian triumphalism. Great Christian pride. We're going to, we're going to save the world. We, we cannot, but he can. Okay? We are humbly in dependence upon him because we deserve the same wrath as everybody else, except by his grace that has humbled us and brought us to that place of recognition. Psalm 37, 11 says, But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Blessed are the gentle or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
only this complete abandonment of themselves and their agendas or of ourselves and our agendas to God's will, can it possibly lead to salvation and shelter from his wrath, destructive wrath? Now, righteousness describes the goal of correct living in relation to God and humanity. Following his will as revealed in his commands, the triple occurrence of seek prescribes an antidote for idolatry and self-sufficiency. Humbly seek the Lord and righteousness while waiting on him to respond. It's another way you could phrase it. Then he says, perhaps, doesn't that trouble you? Uh, it kind of leaves it open-ended. What does it mean by perhaps God will hide you? Remember, the name of Zephaniah was uh, hidden by God. <laughs> what does it mean, perhaps? Is it a bit iffy? Is, is God fickle? <laughs> Might we miss out when we thought we were following? Well, by the way, that's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, I did this in your name. We cave and cast out demons in name. And he says, and I, say, I will say to them, depart from me for I never knew you. They had professed, but they weren't truly the Lord's. It's not that they lost their salvation. They were never the Lord's. He says, I never knew you. Not I once knew you and now you've turned back like in apostasy. The, the, but true apostates, of course, never truly were the Lord's. Perhaps, Ron Allen says, there is a beacon of hope for the committed, but not an escape clause for the half-hearted. David Baker says this can, cannot be blithely presumed upon God's people, however, as evidenced by the theologically pregnant word, perhaps. And we see it again in, in a couple of spots in Exodus 32.30. On the next day, Moses said to the people, this is after they'd sinned with the golden calf, you yourselves have committed a great sin and now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. In Amos 5.15, it says, hate evil, love good and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So what does this perhaps mean? Zephaniah seems unconvinced that the people will respond en masse to his call for repentance. So the outcome does not seem to lie with the people, but rather with God. His justice and holiness demand the recognition and punishment of sin, but he has other characteristics as well, including mercy, grace and love, which allow forgiveness of sin when repentance is real. Perhaps, in that sense, yes, it depends upon the mercy of God, which you cannot presume upon, but it is activated when we turn back genuinely to God in humility and dependence upon him. The perhaps here guards God's sovereignty and not our license to sin. We cannot assume God's forgiveness as a kind of cheap grace, allowing, sin with, allowing us to sin with impunity. God, on the other hand, cannot but forgive in the presence of true repentance. In the light of its sinful nature, humanity is called to do its part, to repent and obey. 
in the light of the gracious nature of God, the appropriate response on his part can safely be left with him. Let's just have a look back for a minute at the God who is judging. Psalm 97 gives us a picture. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about him. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth soar and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the peoples have seen his glory. You see, when you see the glory of God, what is left for you but to fall? Like a dead man, as it were, surrendering your heart and will unless you're stubbornly clinging and are willing to fight to the end against the justice and righteousness and the holiness of God. But the offering is given. The Babylonian conquest occurred just as surely and horribly as Zephaniah had predicted. And it came in waves And God's final day of judgment is also sure, but so is his ability to save. To be spared from judgment, recognize that you have sinned, that your sin will bring judgment, that you cannot save yourself, and that God alone can save you. Gene Getz, uh, we'll get to this verse in a moment, it says in the New Testament we have many specific descriptions of the penalty for rejecting the message of Christ's death and resurrection and for continuing in sin. However, in warning people about judgment, we should do so with love and compassion. You know, sometimes the church acts in, in a pious judgmentalism to the Lord. Instead of a there but by the grace of God go I. And only by his grace have I, have I anything, any hope. And Paul says in his words to Titus, Titus 3, 1 and 2, remind them to subject to rulers, to authorities. This is the humility of a genuine follower of God. To be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. That's the humility he's been talking about here. The humble and lowly in the world, they don't make much sense in a worldly sense, but they mark the character of Christ. He says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Look at the anger in the world today. Further you turn from the God, the more that gets ramped up. But when the kindness of God, our Saviour, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by, Holy, by the Holy Spirit. We celebrated that today with Darren as we, he acknowledged that transformation that had gone forward in his life. 
We've looked at the day of gloom. We've seen the promise of hope. Where are you this day? Are you marked by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit in your lives increasingly? By the way, uh, as, as Norm talked about in the communion, you know, that, that, that all... <laughs> Difficult, isn't it? That's humbling because we realise we are sinners still being saved as as well as it is certain. But what is being stripped from us if the Holy Spirit's doing his work are the old ways of the flesh, are the ways in which we allow anything else to be the source of our worship. And we're allowing him to be the centre and focus to strip us away of all things. We looked in a series we did recently a while back in uh, Surviving the Fire (laughs) that things would be burned away. Wood, hay and stubble will all be burned away. That which is not truly a fruit of the Spirit. Where are you? We're going to sing now you are my all in all. Now in one sense we can't, as Norm talked about in the communion, we can't sing it with 100% honesty. But we can, with a sense of humility, say, Lord, have your way in me. Accomplish that. That you indeed may be all in all to me. Let's just bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, that day is coming. And we get a sense of the urgency of the hour to, to choose to acknowledge you, to choose to turn back from the things which dishonor you. And we pray that you would indeed within us work to, is to the place where you are indeed our all in all, our sufficiency, our Lord as well as our Saviour, our Master, knowing that you are our judge and you judge righteously. So, Father, we just pray for your work at this time.